All right, let's go ahead and get started this morning. Let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get things rolling with the class. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we could come together again and, and just uh, meet together and praise you and worship you together, Lord. And we just ask that uh, you would be pleased with what we do here today, that your name would be lifted up. Fathers, we look into this class and, and study the doctrine of God. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment and, and uh, just to uh, be able to understand you the best that we can. And, <clears throat> and this would lead to us worshiping you better. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week, uh, we, we did the first part of the doctrine of God, and we were talking about, we ended by talking about the Trinity um, and the difficulty of, of trying to understand the Trinity. And we talked about, you know, what are some, some kind of bad illustrations of the Trinity and, and some better illustrations of the Trinity. There are no perfect uh, illustrations of the Trinity, obviously, but there are some better ones. Um, and just the, you know, the, the difficulty of that doctrine, it's a, uh, an amazingly hard doctrine to understand, um, but it is one that, that the Bible clearly teaches. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned there at the end that, that quote from Millard Erickson's uh, Systematic Theology, that, you know, if, if you try to understand it, you lose your mind. If you deny it, you lose your soul. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of really what it is. It's a, it's a difficult doctrine. So I want to end our discussion of the Trinity day, today just by pointing to the fact that the Bible clearly establishes all three persons of the Godhead as God. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that there's also kind of a, a functional order uh, to the Godhead. And then we'll kind of move on, uh, you know, with kind of the next step of the, of the doctrine of God. Let me, let me begin by reading again something from Dr. Geisler. Um, we're, we're using, uh, you know, Dr. Norman Geisler's systematic theology as kind of like the, probably the main text for, for this class. Uh, they're, they're, I'm, I'm using a couple others also. But he has this to say about the three different persons that, uh, that are God. It says, in addition to declaring God to be one in nature or essence, the scriptures affirm that there are three distinct persons who are God. All are called God and all have the essential characteristics of a person. Personhood is traditionally understood as one who has intellect, feelings, or emotion, uh, and will. All three of these characteristics are attributed to all three members of the Trinity in Scripture. I just kind of want to read a couple examples. One, God the Father. Now, And many times Jesus refers to to the Father in, in the Gospels. I just want to read one from, from John chapter 6, and just as an example uh, for you guys, John six twenty seven. Jesus says this, uh, uh, but don't be concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. So, you know, like I said, it's just one of many examples uh, in the Bible where, where, you know, God the Father is referred to. Uh, and Jesus does it often in the Gospels. Now, as far as Jesus himself, let me, let me read, uh, I, I thought this was actually a, a, a great kind of summary here of the claims that, of Jesus as God in, in the Bible. Um, this is again by Dr. Geisler. It says, Yahweh, or Jehovah, 
is a special name given by God to himself in the Old Testament. It is the name revealed to Moses in Exodus 3.14 when God said, I am who I am. While other titles for God may be used of men, and he gives the example of Adonai, which means Lord, uh, and of false gods, uh, Elohim, and, and those of you who are in my, my class here recently where we talked about recovering the, the supernatural worldview of the Bible, we talked about the Elohim uh, and the possibility that they are false gods or, uh, you know, created beings that, that essentially are worshipped as false gods. Um, you know, so Elohim can be used that way. It says Yahweh, however, is, is only used to refer to the one true God. No other person or thing was to be worshipped or served, and his name and glory were not to be given to another. Isaiah wrote, Thus saith Jehovah, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. And, and, and later on in Isaiah he wrote, uh, uh, I, am the, I am Jehovah, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise unto graven images. Jesus prayed, and now, Father, glorify me with your presence, with the, uh, in your presence, with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's in John 17, 5. This is an obvious claim to, for Christ's deity, for Jehovah in the Old Testament said, my glory I will not give to another. Jesus also declared, I am the, the first and the last, precisely the words used by Jehovah in Isaiah 44, 6. He said, I am the good shepherd, and the Old Testament said, Jehovah is my shepherd. Further, Jesus claimed to be the judge of all men, and, and Joel quotes Jehovah as saying, there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Likewise, Jesus spoke of himself as the bridegroom, while the Old Testament identifies Jehovah in this way. While the psalmist declares Jehovah is my light, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Perhaps the strongest claim Jesus made to be Jehovah is in John 8, 58, where he says, before Abraham was born, I am. This statement claims not only existence before Abraham, but equality with the I am of Exodus 3, 14. The Jews around him clearly understood his meaning and picked up stones to kill him for blaspheming. The same claim is also made in Mark 14.62 and John 18.5-6. So clearly, Jesus claimed to be God. Now, you know, many have said, well, Jesus never came right out and said, I am God, and that's true. Like, you don't have that specific phrasing. Hey, everybody pay attention to me, I am God. But the, the problem is we don't understand the context often enough of the, of the Old Testament you know, and, and of Jesus' life, because many of the things that he said about himself, the Jews clearly understood him to be claiming Godhead. You know, things, as I just, you know, as he just pointed out, claiming to be the shepherd, claiming to be the light, you know, all these things were things that the Old Testament said about Jehovah. Uh, and and as, as Isaiah pointed out in several occasions, that, you know, Jehovah said, I will not share my glory with anyone. Besides me, there is no other God. And so Jesus saying the things he would say were very provocative. You know, he understood that what he was saying when he called himself certain things. And you see the immediate reaction of the Jews oftentimes was to, to try to stone him, to pick up stones and, 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 and say, hey, you're a blasphemer, we're going to kill you. So they clearly got the fact that he was claiming to be God. So even, even though we don't have like this expression where he says, hey, I am God, 
We have many, many times in the Gospels where he is saying things about himself that were said about only God. And so essentially, he is claiming to be God. It's just, you know, a little lost in, in, in context for us. So, you know, the, the claims that Jesus is God are clearly in the Bible all throughout the New Testament. He claims equality with God. He's worshiped as God. He is called God by others. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's clear throughout all of Scripture. Now, the Holy Spirit. Let's uh, look at Acts 5, verses 3 and, and 4. Now, this is a famous story about Ananias and Sapphira, and we're not going to go through the whole story. I just want to point out that clearly in this passage, the Holy Spirit is seen uh, and referred to as God. And Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished, and after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You, were lying, you weren't lying to us, but to God. So, you know, Ananias is told by Peter, you know, you lied to the Holy Spirit, and then Peter goes on to, to st state very clearly that when you did that, when you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. Okay? And again, this is one of numerous times in, in, in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is referred to as God. So clearly, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all referred to as God in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. In fact, at times, we see all three of them together. Um, you know, probably the most famous episode is at Jesus' uh, baptism. If you turn to Matthew chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. This is Christ coming up out of the water. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. So again, we see an example here of all three at the same time, you know, present together. God the Father is speaking, the Holy Spirit is settling on Christ the Son. Uh, and here you see the Trinity uh, all, you know, all there together. Uh, interestingly enough, when uh, you know, Jesus gave the disciples the Great Commission, he, he said, go out and make, you know, make disciples and baptize them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to this day, we still use that same baptismal you know, phrase when we baptize people. You know, we say we are baptizing you in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, so, you know, clearly the, the, the New Testament states that, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all God, uh, and, and, and again, the, the, the Trinity, as hard as it is to understand, there is one God, one essence or nature, but in that essence or nature there are three distinct persons. One way that it's been stated through the years by theologians is that God is eternally manifested as three persons. The one true God is eternally manifested as three persons. And this is eternally. You know, all the same nature of, as the, of the Godhead is there in all three persons. Okay? 
So that, in a nutshell, is, is, is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I mentioned there's a, a functional order. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, even though uh, they are equal in, in essence, they, they each seem to have a role, a function. You know, Jesus referred to this often when he said, I do the will of the Father. You know, the, the, many people look at, especially when it comes to like salvation, that God kind of designed salvation, Christ carried out salvation, and the Holy Spirit applies salvation. They all have a role, they all have a function within the Godhead, okay? Doesn't mean any are, are greater or less than the others, they, they, they have, there's a functional order in the Godhead. You know, God proposes, Jesus carries out, the Holy Spirit applies. You know, and, and that seems to be, be the way it works in, in, in not just salvation, but in many things. Another way of looking at it is John talked about how Christ declared uh, God to the world, that, that no one had seen God at any time because God is, is pure spirit, but Jesus, when he came and you know, took on human flesh, you know, that was a declaration of God to the world that this is who I am. You know, and Jesus calls himself the word, which words are a declaration of what is in our mind. It's an expression of what my thoughts are. So again, Jesus is, is the one who kind of is the, it declares who God is. You know, he's the one who manifests to, to us, you know, who God is, okay? So there's a, there's a, a role that, that each plays, now, I want to move on to today, and today we're going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about some of the, the attributes that are kind of, I, I don't want to say easier, um, that would be a wrong way of putting it, uh, are more accessible to us, I guess you would say, we're more familiar with, uh, you know, we're going to talk about omnipotence and omniscience and, and, and omnipresence and holiness and, and, and things like that today. Um, just for time's sake, we're, we've got a lot of try, to try to cover here, so we're not going to spend tons of time on each one. I think you know, each one of these is, is a little easier to understand than trying to understand the Trinity. However, the implications sometimes are great, and, and we don't spend a lot of time thinking of the implications. And so uh, I'm going to use the same basic formula. I'll give you the definition from, from Dr. Geisler's book, then we'll kind of discuss things and we'll look at a verse or two that kind of uh, talks you know, about what, uh, what you know, we are talking about. So let's start with omnipotence, that God has all power. That's essentially what omnipotence means. Let me read from Dr. Geiser and his definition here. It says, this chapter discusses, and, and, and by the way, he, in all of these, he kind of pairs two together that kind of fit logically together, and you'll find that, that, and we talked about that last week, that a lot of these uh, attributes go hand in hand with the other attributes. They lead from kind of one to another, uh, and so that, that's kind of how he's chose to do it uh, in, in his uh, theology. It says, uh, this chapter discusses two, two more metaphysical or non-moral properties of God, omnipotence and omniscience. God is all-powerful and everywhere present. Both of these attributes are strongly challenged by much of contemporary theology. Traditionally, however, they are at the very core of distinguishing characteristics of the God of classical theism, who is at the basis of orthodox theology. 
In short, to deny either of these traits is to place oneself outside the orthodox view of God. There are a couple of popular misconceptions of God's omnipotence. Thus, it is necessary uh, to carefully define omnipotence before discussing it. We will first state what it is and then what it is not. Literally, omnipotence means the, that God has unlimited power. Omni means all, okay, if, in case you were wondering. So it, it basically is all-powerful. According to the standard Hebrew lexicon, the word Shaddai means self-sufficient or almighty. Others concur, um, and, and he, he gives other examples. He said the Septuagint translated it by the Greek word pantocrator, which means all-powerful. The same is true in the New Testament, where Pantocrator means almighty or all-powerful. Theologically, omnipotent means that God can do whatever is possible to do, or God can do what is, uh, or God can do what is not impossible to do. His power is unlimited and uninhibited, uninhibited in, by anything else. Negatively, omnipotence does not mean that God can do what is contrary, or what is contradictory. Scripture affirms that God cannot contradict his nature. He cannot force freedom, for example. He works persuasively, not coercively. And he gives Matthew 23, 37 as an example. Further, omnipotence does not mean that God must do all that he can do. It simply means that he has the power to do whatever is possible, even if he chooses not to do some things. God is free not to use his omnipotence whenever he desires. That is, God is free to limit the use of his power, but he is not free to limit the extent of his power. God must know all that he knows. God does not have to do all he can do. Okay, you guys get the distinction, all right? And, and as I mentioned, you know, it, we don't like to think of kind of limits of God, but yet the Bible clearly says that because God is, is perfect. He's holy. He's sinless. So the Bible's very clear. Your Bible tells us God cannot sin. Well, that doesn't mean he's not um, you know, omnipotent. You know, the, the idea of God doing something contra contradictory to himself is not a challenge to God's omnipotence. In order to do that, he would cease to be God, essentially. You know, he would no longer be perfect or sinless if he could sin. You know, and, and, and so God can do anything that is... is possible for him to do you know a couple other examples several times in scripture the bible says god cannot lie it says that god cannot deny himself there's actually quite a number of times in 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 the scriptures where it says god cannot do certain things but they are all things that contradict god's very nature you know god essentially all of them if to use just the word sin would be a good way of summing them all up if god could do any of those things it would essentially be sin, and God cannot sin. So a proper understanding of omnipotence is God can do all possible things, all things that are not contradictory to himself and to the way he ordered his universe. Like if God says certain things are wrong, God then won't go do that thing. Okay, so that, you know, those are the only limits on God is his very nature uh, and the way he has chosen to to do his world, his universe, you know, his creation. Uh, the, the idea, the, the biblical idea of God's uh, omnipotence is, is, again, found all throughout the Bible. I want to point out a couple in, in Revelation, um, first Revelation 1.8 and then Revelation 4.8. 
uh, you know, where it's, it states this. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end, the Lord says to the Lord God, I am the one who is, who always was, and who still is still to come, the Almighty One. And there's that, that word, Pantocrator. I am the Almighty One. Uh, chapter 4, verse 8. It says, each of these living beings had six wings, uh, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out, day after day and night after night. They, they kept on saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Pantocrator, the one who, who always was, who is, and who is still to come. So that idea of God being Almighty, of having all power, is found throughout the, throughout the Bible, uh, and there we see God both saying that about himself and the angels saying that about him, the living creatures saying that about him. Now, there are real implications to God's omnipotence, great implications for us. One, God will defeat evil. You, you know, every once in a while, um, you know, you talk to people, and, and we all do this at times, we all kind of, I think, feel the same way sometimes, Especially if things are really bad, like in our life, if something is really going wrong, we're struggling with an illness, we're struggling with finances, we're, relationships, whatever the case may be, and you feel so defeated, and you're kind of like, you know, God is, is, you know, is good going to win? Have you ever felt like that? Sure, we've all felt like that. Sometimes you just turn on the news. One of the reasons I don't turn on the news you know, you turn on your news and you think, is good going to win? Well, you know, in the end, it does. And, the, and, and one of the great guarantees of that is God is almighty. He is the almighty one. He, nothing can defeat him. It's not even close. Remember when we studied Revelation? We spent two years studying Revelation here a couple years ago. For those of you who are with me, when we were reading through that, did there, was there ever a time where it seemed like the battle was even close? See, that's the kind of thing of movies. It's not the kind of things of Scripture. Scripture never portrays the battle between God and Satan as even being close. It says Satan's more powerful than we are, but it never even comes close to saying Satan approaches the power of God. doesn't even approach it. In fact, all throughout that study, we saw over and over that, that God had to allow Satan to do the things that he was doing. He couldn't just do it on his own. He didn't have that kind of authority. So the implication of God's omnipotence is that he defeats evil. It also means he keeps his promises. He has the power to do all things, and that includes, by the way, accomplish our salvation. You know, we all have doubts sometimes. But God says that he is not only the, the beginner, but the, the, the finisher of salvation. From beginning to end, God can take care of it. There is nothing that he cannot accomplish. You know, and, and, and so God keeps his promises, and that's the one thing he says about himself over and over again. And we'll see that a little more today as we look at some of these other uh, attributes that, that God, you know, God basically says, you know, when have I ever said anything and not done it? Yeah, you know, th that's 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 God, and so uh, you know, there are a lot of wonderful implications to the omnipotence of God. 
All right, omnipresence. God is all present. Technically speaking, omnipresence is not an attribute of God, but rather it flows from his attributes. Omnipresence results from his relation to his creation. If there is no creation, then there is nothing else to which God can be present. However, since God is infinite in himself, his omnipresence does express a certain characteristic of God that becomes manifest when there is a creation to which he can be everywhere present. Literally, omnipresence means that God is everywhere present at once. Negatively stated, there is nowhere that God is absent. The term ubiquitous is sometimes used interchangeably with omnipresence. The root meaning uh, of, of ubiquity is from the Latin ubic, uh, which means everywhere. It is helpful to see what omnipresence does not mean. It does not mean that God is creation. Th that's pantheism, okay? God is not the creation. And sometimes we will say things like this, you know, mistakenly. You'll hear sometimes people say, well, God is all there is. Do not say that. The Bible never says that. That, that is a, a pantheistic statement. God is not all there is. God is all-powerful, and he created the other things that are. But we truly are. We exist. Okay? You know, so, you know, we... Be careful sometimes how you speak. You know, God is not all there is, but God has created other things. Everything that exists exists because God's created it. But he is not the creation himself. In theism, God made the world. In pantheism, God is the world. Nor does omniscience mean that God is in creation, which is, is panentheism. That essentially means that God is is in that chair or in me or in the podium that is also a false teaching okay god is not in those things pantheism is kind of pantheism is that the, there only is one thing that exists and that is god he is everything panentheism is almost like god has a creation but he wears it kind of like you would wear a glove he is in all things okay both of those things are wrong. They are false teachings. They slip into Christianity oftentimes, so be very careful. Even very careful with the things you read sometimes because, I mean, I, I've heard or read different authors that essentially are, are kind of quietly, you know, pantheistic or panentheist. In fact, some will come out and claim it. If any of you have ever heard of Richard Rohr, who, who you know, is, is a, a Catholic uh, priest, he, he's, he's basically a heretic. He's very popular in, in you know, a lot of liberal Christian circles. M Richard Rohr comes right out and says, I'm a panentheist. He, that's what he calls himself. He doesn't even try to hide it. You know, so he's simply a heretic. So be careful, okay? God created a real world. So his omniscience does not mean that he is either in things or that he is the thing that itself. As we've seen in, in previous chapters, God is not in space, nor is he in time. Neither is God in matter, since he is immaterial or pure spirit. What does, then does omniscience mean? It means that all of God is everywhere at once. As the indivisible being, 
God does not have one part here and another part there, for he has no parts. God is present to, but not part of, creation. God is everywhere, but he is not anything. He is at every point in space, but he is not spatial. He is at every point in space, but he is not of any point in space. There is, of course, a sense in which God is in the universe, but not of it. Uh, He is in it, better yet, it is in God as its cause. However, he is not part of its effect. All of God is everywhere, yet no part of God is anywhere, since he has no parts. You hurt your head hurting yet? Uh-huh. I told you the implications of some of these things are difficult to grasp. Some illustrations of omnipresence are good and some are not. For instance, God is not present to the whole universe the way air fills the room, since more molecules are in one place in the room while others are in another. All of God is everywhere. A better illustration is that God is in or present to the whole universe the way a mind is in its brain, or the the manner in which beauty is present in in a work of art, or that thought is in a sentence. In each case, the one is present to and penetrates the whole without without a part of it being in in a part of the other. Okay? I realize this is difficult. You know... It, uh, but, but God is not, as he mentioned, God is not spatial. God is not bound within space, time, and matter. So he is capable of truly being everywhere at once. We are not. We are bound within the space, time, matter universe. That God created that universe, so he transcends it. So he is everywhere. Okay? Yeah, Terry. Absolutely right. Yep. It really goes again with it, and you see why Geisler puts omnipotence and omniscience together, or I mean uh, omnipresence together, because Satan is not. Satan is a creature, and all created beings, well, everything is a created being other than God, or a created thing. And so God is the only transcendent being. So again, his omnipresence and his omnipotence go hand in hand. It's not even a close fight between him and Satan. Okay? So yeah, thanks, Barry. It it does a little bit, yes. Well, yes, but hold on. We're going to talk about omniscience here in a second. You're taking Tim's part. He's not here this morning. (laughs) <laughs> just just hold on for a couple couple minutes here uh, yeah, yeah you're filling in um but anyways uh, you know and and again revelation 4 uh 11 let me read Le- revelation 4 11 it says you are worthy o-, o lord our god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you please God is the creator of all things. He transcends it all. He is outside of it all, but yet he is present because he is, he is its creator. Okay? Very difficult concept to understand. Now, omniscience. All right? Uh, and, and here we'll get to, we'll get to your question. Um, first of all, what's, what's a, a definition of omniscience? 
Historically, the omniscience of God was a straightforward doctrine. God knows everything, past, present, and future. He knows the actual and the possible. Only the impossible or contradictory is outside of the knowledge of God. Again, God can't know, you know anything that is, 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 is contrary to kind of you know, the reality of how he's created things. Uh, you know, they're not real things. So anything that there is true knowledge of, God knows. The, you know, the actual, the possible, um, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of this today, but, and this is debated amongst orthodox scholars, uh, is whether or not God has what is called middle knowledge, that God not only knows the possible, but he knows every, um, every possible free decision that his creatures could make under every possible circumstance. Okay, uh, I, I know that's a mouthful, but that God not only knows the, the possible and the actual, God knows every possible choice that any of us could make under any particular circumstance. Now again, not everybody, you know, not everybody goes quite that far, uh, though, though a lot of, uh, like, like in the world of, of Christian philosophers like Dr. Geisler was, um, you know, there's, there's a split over that particular nature to, to God's omniscience. Um, a guy back in, I think it was the 16th century, a Jesuit philosopher and theologian named Luis de Molina came up with a con- this kind of concept, and it came to be known as Molinism. Uh, and it, it was greatly debated at the time. The Jesuits loved it. The Dominicans didn't. Uh, and, and, and it's gone on through time. Uh, you know, uh, and, and so I don't want to, that will really fry your, your gray cell, so we're, I don't want to get in any deeper to, to that today. Um, you know, Dr. Geiser is not a, a Molinist. Uh, William Lane Craig, Alvin Plantinga, J.P. Moreland, they are Molinists. So, and they're all like great friends and great philosophers, but they disagree on this concept. So I'm just throwing that out there as, is, you know, sometimes God, there's a possibility God's omniscience is so great it's even beyond things that we have, you know, conception of, all right? So, so God literally knows everything, okay? All possible things. Um, now, let me, again, I'm, I'm just gonna read, you know, like, like one verse here to save a little bit of time instead of all the different verses <laughs> I wrote down, which I always have a tendency to do. Um, let me look at Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. He counts the stars and calls them all by name. How great is our Lord. His power is absolute. His understanding is beyond comprehension. There, again, you get that idea of, of, of two different you know, attributes in one, you know, kind of, well, kind of dealing together. Uh, his almighty power Psalm 147, verses uh, 4 and 5. Um, you, you know, but yet his, his all, having all knowledge, he literally can name every star. Uh, you know, he, he, not, he names them, he knows them. They, you know, they are his creation. Uh, his, his understanding is beyond comprehension. Exclamation point. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it's beyond comprehension. A um, couple other verses, if you want to you know, write them down and look them up yourself, 
uh, Genesis 6, 5, Psalm 139, verses 2 through 4, all speak of this. So God knows everything. And getting to the question you asked, yes, God knows everything past, everything present, everything future at the same time. But remember, God is not bound by time. God is outside of time. So God is not, um, you know, God doesn't, and here's, you know, the idea of foreknowledge is a very biblical understanding, but we don't really understand what that necessarily means. God doesn't have to, like, be at one spot, point in time and look down the, the corridor of time at another point. God knows everything, and I, I think I read it there last week. God is kind of like almost in an eternal moment. Time does not pass to God. He is always in, you know, his presence. And, and so, you know, for us, we can only do like one thing at a time. Well, that does, God's not bound by that because he's not in time. Um, the, the, one of the best ways for me to understand this is imagine yourself looking at a road map. You can stand outside the road map because you are outside the road map. You transcend it. You can look outside of it. You can see every place on that map. Well, that's the way kind of all things are with God. He's outside them all. You know, I've heard people say, well, how can God listen to all the prayers of all the people who are praying to him all at the same time? God isn't listening to them all at the same time because God is not in time. So he can hear them all because he's not bound by time. Time doesn't pass to him. Now, now there, there's truly a mind-boggling concept. Okay? You know, that, that will definitely fry a few gray matter parts when you start to think of that. But, you know, that is basically, you know, what God is. He is outside of time. He is timeless. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly right. I, I mean, these things are ex enormously hard to understand, but the implications for all these things are enormous for us. Because God can do what he decides to do, and, and, and that includes our salvation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do that all the time. I meet somebody new and I walk away going, who was that? I can't remember that person's name. Well, yeah, God doesn't, you know, th there's nothing like that with God. You know, I, I well, ooh, I don't want to get too far off on this because we're going to run out of time but there's a couple passages in the Bible that I, I absolutely love you know when we're going through the worst moments in our life the moments that you kind of feel like God where are you you know there's a passage in scripture that says, God says I collect your tears in my bottle now again it's an anthropomorphism God doesn't have a great big bottle in the sky that has tears in it the point is he is paying attention to us. And every time, every struggle, every tear, every heartbreak, God is not ignoring it because we're here stuck in time and we kind of think, God, where are you? But he is always there loving and paying attention. And, he, and, and his collecting our tears is the same as him saying, I remember every tear, everyone you cried. That's a statement of God's love of his omnibenevolence, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. 
Okay. <laughs> yep. Sure. He knows everything. Satan does not know that. That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. So again, that's one of the big differences between God and Satan. Where, you know, God has omniscience, Satan does not. Yep. Yep. Exactly. That's actually a really good illustration. All right. Uh, let's move on to some of God's uh, moral attributes. Um, let me kind of read a little bit of a segue here uh, between these next attributes and the ones we have, have just been talking about. As we have seen, God has both moral and non-moral attributes and characteristics. All the preceding ones are non-moral in character. They are also called metaphysical attributes since they describe God's actual non-moral nature. The first group of these is also called incommunicable since they cannot be communicated to creatures. You know, God can't give us omniscience or omnipresence or omnipotence, you know. However, these next ones, he can. They are communicable. God also has moral attributes and characteristics. These are communicable to creatures since they do not necessitate infinitude. They include holiness, righteousness, or justice, uh, and he, he goes a whole list, jealousy, perfection, truthfulness, uh, go- goodness or love, mercy and wrath. Um, so, you know, we're not going to touch on all those things today. We just don't have time. But uh, you guys get the idea. There are some attributes that, that you know, because God is infinite, they, he is the only one who has those attributes. There are others because, the, you know, they do not qua- require in, infinitude, God can give to us. So we, we have them on a, on a, a lesser basis, okay? Uh, you know, so, th- so these are called the communicable or moral attributes of God. Now, I want us to talk first about holiness. This is one of the most spoken about attributes of God. Um, holiness essentially means to be other than or to be separate from. Generally, we associate holiness with righteousness, and a lot of times people define it that way, but that is, that is correct, but not correct enough. Not, not, it doesn't go far enough. Holiness essentially means that God is other. There is nothing like God. He is unique. He is, he is, is the only one like himself. He is holy, so that separates him from everything else. So essentially when God is saying to us, be holy because I am holy, he means that even though you are a human being living in this world, he he has communicated a certain part of that moral attribute to us. And he says, I want you to live like you're different from the world. That's essentially what he's saying. I want you to be a human being who lives like a completely different human being, like a completely unique human being. Why? Because that's the way God is. Now, let's delve into this a a little bit here. Again, let me uh, read from Dr. Geisler's book here. As we have, excuse me, God's attribute of holiness defines simple categorization, for it combines both metaphysical and moral dimensions. The biblical Hebrew words for holy are godesh, meaning apartness or sacredness, and gadosh, 
translated sacred or holy. The Greek word, word hagios means righteous, holy, or pious. Theologically, God's holiness means that he is totally and utterly set apart from all creation and evil. His holiness is associated with his jealousy, his exaltation, his righteousness, his almightiness, his absolute uniqueness, his moral purity, and his being vexed by evil. As such, his holiness should inspire a deep sense of awe and perpetual worship in his creatures. As mentioned above, God's holiness is both metaphysical and a, and, and a moral attribute. It refers to his absolute moral uniqueness as well as his total separateness, separatedness from all creatures. In one sense, holiness is an overall attribute of God that distinguishes him from everything else that exists. Again, that idea of uniqueness or otherliness. God is other. You know, he, he is different from all things. Essentially, that is the meaning of Godesh, apartness or sacredness. Okay? So that is who God is and how God is. Like he said, that's kind of a, that's one that kind of is both a, a metaphysical and a non-metaphysical attribute. It is how God is, and it's also what God is, and how he, how he uh, does things. Now, there are many places, again, in the Bible that, that refer to, to God's holiness. Um, I'm going to just read one, Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders? And again, it begins with that essential question, who is like you and among the gods, like the small g gods, all the other things and creatures that people worship? Is there any of them like you, God? And, and, and the Bible's like, no. No, God is completely unique, glorious in his holiness, awesome in his splendor, performing great wonders. Now, another thing, as I mentioned, that often goes with that is righteousness. Um, you know, you could say essentially that righteousness is kind of a part of God's holiness. But righteousness is kind of also its own, its own thing. Um, let me define righteousness for us. Literally, the word righteousness means to be just or right. Theologically, it refers to the intrinsic characteristic of God wherein he is absolutely just or right and is the ultimate standard of justice and rightness. God never makes mistakes. God is always right, and in his judgments with mankind, he is always just. He does the right thing. It's not possible for him to not do the right thing. And, by the way, how we figure what is right and what is wrong is based upon God's character itself. He's the ultimate, you know, kind of... Uh, measuring point, if you will, of what righteousness is. You know, I'm always amazed at the concepts that exist, and, and this is to the point, but it's, it's, it's kind of take going a, a bit further, kind of applying righteousness even to us as humans. I'm amazed at the concepts that exist in the world of righteousness and justice but yet people have no idea where that concept comes from. And it comes from God. You know, the effect that God has had and the Bible has had 
as, as the communication of God on the world around us is so profound that very few people really understand it. You know, God not only created the world and then let us the freedom to screw it up, but then he stepped in and, and sent his son to be the savior, but then not just that, he's also affected the world. You know, uh, it, the Museum of the Bible right now has a, you know, an exhibition on this very thing. You know, how the effect that the Bible has had on like the entire world. Pointing out all these different things that people never think of you know, that came from the Bible, but yet they come directly from the Word of God. They come from things about God. You know, so that idea of righteousness and justice, the very idea we have of righteousness and justice all comes from God's righteousness and justice. You know, he truly is like the, the, the marker stone for what is right and what is just. And by the way, he tells us that this is something that we are to do. It is a communicable attribute. You know, he, he, he says that we are to thrive for righteousness. You know, th this is how we are to be. <coughs> okay, we're gonna have to move. <laughs> we're gonna have to move here. Something that kind of goes along with this a lot of the times is truth. The concept of, of truth. Let me define what truth is for you. The Hebrew word for truth means firm, stable, faithful, reliable, correct. The Greek word for truth means truthful, dependable, upright, and real. In brief, the, uh, the term truth, as used in Scripture, means that which, uh, because, of its, it, because it corresponds to reality, the facts or the, or the original, is reliable, faithful, and stable. Used of words, truth is telling it like it is. True statements are those that correspond to reality and hence are dependable. By contrast, falsehood is telling it like it is not, and therefore it is not reliable. False expressions do not correspond to reality, and the devil is the, is the father of all lies. Truth is absolute. God cannot lie, and his word cannot pass away. Truth as it's generally understood by people who do dictionaries, by philosophers, Truth means that which corresponds to reality. It is what is. It's what's real. The Bible says that God is truth, just like God is righteous. Now, that is communicated then to us, and our concepts of, of righteousness and justice come from God. Same way with truth. God is truth. Our concepts of truthfulness come from God. That truth is what corresponds to the facts. It's what is real. Not only does the Bible say that God is true, he tells us that we are to be true. We are to care about truthfulness. In a modern world where, quite frankly, it doesn't seem like Christians a lot of times care any more about the truth than the non-Christians. I hate to say that, but that's just reality. We'll lie to your, ourselves as quick as, as a non-Christian will, it seems. We don't seem to care about the truth. And I think that breaks God's heart. As the Bible tells us, we are to care about the truth. So, you know, this is part of the attributes of God. Now, love. 
what we, and, and I realize I'm moving quicker than I normally would, but I'm not going to get done if I don't, so I apologize. If you want to look up some verses uh, on righteousness and truth, look up Zephaniah 3.5. That'll keep you busy for a little bit. You know, we'll exercise your fingers. Look up Zephaniah 3.5. Acts 17.31, Romans 2.6. If you want to look up verses on truth, uh, look up Numbers 23.19. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, we all, I think, know that verse. Ephesians 4.25. Okay. Now love, God's omnibenevolence. One of the best-known moral attributes of God is His love. Some theologians stress God's love to be to, uh, to the neglect of His holiness and justice. Others diminish it by limiting it to only some people. The former tend toward universalism, while the latter uh, use it as a basis for particularism, uh, limited atonement. It is debated by orthodox theologians whether goodness and love are the same thing or whether they are different. And if different, whether love is an attribute of God or an activity of God. Some hold that goodness is an attribute of God and that love is an act of His goodness. But 1 John 4.16 says God is love, seemingly applying the term to His essence. If love is defined as willing the good of its object, then for all practical purposes, love and goodness can be treated synonymously. Literally, the word omnibenevolent means all good. Biblically, the basic Hebrew term for love, hesed, used of, of God means goodness, affection, goodwill, loving kindness, or tender loving kindness. And, and you could actually add like a whole series of other words to that. You know, hesed, I, I, I've talked to you guys about hesed before. That's my favorite, my favorite Hebrew word. Because all the, it, it applies to all those different things, okay? That God is all those different things. The Greek word agape used of God of God's love means benevolence, a selfless, sacrificial love. Theologically, God's omnibenevolence refers to his infinite or unlimited goodness. Okay, that God is all good, all loving. And when it's talking about good, it's not just talking about good as his nature, but it is also the thing that he does. You know, and that's why goodness and, and love are connected together, because Goodness is not just something that is an inward thing. Goodness is an outward thing. You know, it's something that you have inside of you that you think, but it's also something you carry out. So goodness, and again, as he said, you know, theologians debate, are these two things, are they one? But all agree that they are in some way connected. Because one is what is inside, and the other one is what carries things out outwardly. Um. I already read 1 John 4.16. Let me read Jeremiah. Go read an Old Testament one. Jeremiah 31.3, I believe it is. Boy, that's the verse I want. Long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love, with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. So again, you see that, that idea of everlasting love and unfailing love. 
Other passages, he talks about how much he loved Israel despite the fact that they disobeyed him and did not love him. So, you know, our inability to love God as much as God loves us, thankfully, does not stop God from loving us. You know, it, it, again, we can be very thankful for these attributes. He still loves even when we don't. You know, and I, I'm awfully glad he does. Uh, it's something that we are told to do in, in Luke 6.35. You can look that up if you want. And, and, and we are told uh, to be loving. Let me just uh, read something here. It says, God is not only completely truthful, but he is absolutely good. He has not only perfect integrity, but he has perfect charity or love. In short, he is all truthful and all loving. It is impossible for him to lie, and he, and he is loved by his very nature. As such, these attributes provide complete confidence in his pronouncements and promises. His work cannot be broken or perish. Likewise, we can trust that his love will never fail us. Romans 8, 35-39 speaks of that. Okay? God's unfailing love toward us. While God possesses truth and love in an absolute sense, he is able to communicate them to us in a limited degree. Hence, these moral attributes are called communicable attributes of God. Now, real quickly, perfection. God is perfect. I looked up the wrong reference. Another attribute of God is, is that of absolute moral perfection. God is morally impeccable. He is not simply an infinite being. He is an infinitely perfect being. The Hebrew word perfect means flawless or excellent. There are several Hebrew words for perfect. Tamim, meaning complete, sound, blameless, perfect, without blemish. Shalem, meaning complete, safe and blameless. I'm not going to give you all of them, but you get the idea. There are, I think, four or five different Hebrew words for perfect. The Greek, word for perfect, uh, the Greek words for perfect are teleos, which means complete, perfect, and mature, and then there's, there's like another three, okay? And we'll just save time. And, but they all essentially mean the same thing. Uh, you know, that, that God is blameless, God is complete, God is perfect, He is excellent. They all carry that same... Uh, idea. And if you want to look up some verses, look up Deuteronomy 32.4 and Matthew 5.48. Okay? Mercy. Now, strictly speaking, many do not believe that mercy is an attribute so much as it is an, an, an action of God based upon his attributes. And these next couple are going to be of that nature. Uh, real quickly, and we're not going to read again all these different, uh, you know, different words for it. But there's another pair of God's moral characteristics are are His mercy and wrath. While some mistakenly believe these are incompatible, they in fact form a unity when the, w within the character of God. There is, however, a legitimate uh, question raised as to whether mercy and wrath are attributes of God or activities that flow from other attributes, even. If they are acts or not attributes, they are nevertheless deep-seated attributes such as goodness 
and justice from which these actions proceed. Regardless of whether mercy is itself an attribute or an activity of God, it is deeply, deeply rooted in his unchangeable nature. As such, it reveals something extremely important about God's character. There are several Hebrew words that are associated with God's mercy. Kaporeth uh, means ransom, propitiatory, uh, or the mercy seat, which was kind of where the blood of the atonement was, was offered. Racham uh, means to love, to have compassion, or to show mercy. And I've already mentioned hased, ascend, uh, goodness, kindness, merc- mercifulness, loving kindness. Uh, there are Greek words associated with mercy in the New Testament. Elimon means to show mercy, to pity, to have compassion, or to be merciful. And, and I'm just going to stop uh, there, but there are, there are others. Um, you guys have probably heard me say this before, but I think this is a good way of kind of understanding this. Mercy is when God get, does not give us what we deserve. You know, and, and, I've, and if you've heard me use this example before, I apologize, but for those of you who haven't, it may help. If, if I went out and I robbed a bank, and I was caught, and I came before the judge, and let's say Dale's the judge, and he hears the case, and there's no doubt that I'm guilty. I mean, I've got the money on me, you know, red-handed. I, you know, stole $100,000, and I've, you know, they caught me. Mercy is, like, maybe the law says I should spend 50 years in prison. If Dale says, no, I, I know there's the circumstances of your life, I'm only going to give you 20. That's mercy. That's an act of mercy. He did not give me what I deserve. We often talk about grace. Grace is, is, is unmerited favor. It's God giving us what we don't deserve. Grace and, and mercy are related. Mercy is the part of it where God does not give us what we deserve to get. We deserve to spend eternity in hell. God does not give us that, you know, unless that's what we choose. But God does not give us that. He's provided a way of salvation. That is grace. Grace would be, you know, grace is kind of giving you what you don't deserve. So if I went to, you know, Dale as a judge and he said, you stole $100,000, you know, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. You deserve 50 years in prison. But if he turns around and says, hey, you're free, keep the money, that's grace. He gave me what I did not deserve, Okay. So mercy and grace are related, but they're two different things. They're kind of like flip sides of a coin. They both flow from God's love. God is gracious to us because he's merciful to us, and he's merciful to us because he loves us. And that's what the Bible tells us. Because of his great love, he has mercy upon us, and he bestows grace upon us. He gives us what we don't deserve, and he refrains from giving us what we do because he loves us. And that's what Dr. Geiser's talking about, how they flow from deep-seated parts of, of, of God. And God's wrath is the same way. Essentially, God's wrath is his judgment over sin. The fact that God will judge this world someday. God will judge all evil. Uh, if you want to look up some verses uh, you know, in, in, with some of these things, particularly mercy, look at Numbers 14, 18 through 19, and Luke 1, verse 50. That God will ultimately judge. God has wrath upon sin, upon evil. And again, that is because God is perfect. He is just. 
He has to judge what is wrong. Because he is merciful, he, he doesn't give us what we deserve. And, and because of that, he is gracious and he gives us a way out. But for everyone who does not take that, God will also judge. And his wrath will burn against those who do not take the mercy and the, and, and the grace that he provides. He is both omnibenevolent, all-loving, and he is also righteous and holy and just. And in God, those things perfectly all meet together in, in him. Okay? All right, we are out of time. Next week, we're going to do Doctrine of Christ, Christology. Okay, next week. So be here. Okay, Doctrine of Christ. All right? Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, uh, I just thankful, I'm thankful for who you are, Father. Um, you are awesome. And we should be in awe of you. So thank you for caring about us, for loving us, for stooping down to us. Father, we just uh, we love you because you loved us first. And I, I just pray that you would glorify and in, in, in our love for you and that we would please you here today by lifting up your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, that concept of grace is interesting because I mentioned it in the prayer there. The, the Hebrew word for grace means to stoop down. The idea of a king stooping down to one of his subjects and meeting one of their needs. Because that's essentially what God did for us. Okay? You got a question, I can tell. <laughs> yes. That's exactly right. It, it, it is.